Okay, everybody. Thanks very much. Um, <clears throat> we may have met, uh, I think we did meet uh, uh, on a Monday morning a couple of weeks back. My name again is Professor Mick or Michael Cox uh, from the Department of International Relations here at the LSE. Um, I'm also uh, associated with Summer School with the grand title of Director of Strategy and Planning. That means I do all the strategy and the planning and everybody else does all the work. So you can see it's a, it's a wonderful job. Uh, one of the great parts of this job, uh, to bring the LSE experience to all people from summer school, and I hope you've been enjoying it, by the way. I hear you had a lively time last week debating whether China's going to take over the world. Um, but one of the great things I do in this job, I like doing in this job, of course, is bringing the LSE experience. And part of that is the public lectures, which I'm sure you know the LSE is internationally renowned for. Probably there are more things going on at the LSE any one evening, in any one part of any term, in any one uh, year than probably any other educational institution in London and certainly probably in Europe and the world. Uh, last week, as I said, you had Martin Jakes telling you about the rise of China. Uh, and this week, I think we have an equally eminent uh, speaker, Professor Mary Calder, a good friend, colleague here at the LSE, speaking on human security in an age of turbulence. Uh, Mary and I go back dare I say it, a long way. Uh, we engaged in a discussion once about something you may remember called the Cold War, although you have to be over the age of 55 to remember what that is. Um, but we had long discussions about the nature of the Cold War, what drove the Cold War. We then had long debates and discussions about what brought the Cold War to an end in 1989. And then uh, Mary uh, has been evolving her thinking about the nature of what constitutes security after the Cold War. After all, it isn't any longer the Warsaw Pact lined up against NATO. It's no longer the two superpowers facing one another off. Security has clearly changed since the end of the Cold War in an age of globalization and certainly since 9-11. And nobody has theorized and thought and written about this uh, with greater expertise and fluency than, uh, than Mary Calder. So with no further ado, Mary, welcome here to summer school. Thank you very much for participating in the lectures to talk tonight on human security in an age of turbulence. Mary Calder, please. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Mick. And actually, your reminder of the Cold War is uh, very good in terms of my, the story I want to tell you to start with. I want to tell you my Sarajevo story. Uh, so, this is how it starts. A fisherman fishes a mermaid. It may not sound as though it has much to do with it, but it does. And the mermaid says, if you throw me back into the sea, I'll give you three wishes. And so he wishes to be young and handsome. He wishes to have a beautiful wife. And he wishes to be very important. And he throws the mermaid back into the sea. <laughs> And he wakes up in a grand, ornate room. And the door opens, and a beautiful woman comes into the room. And she says, wake up, Ferdinand. We have to go to Sarajevo today. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I like that. That's very good. So during the cold, so I had to go to Sarajevo in 1991. And this is the story. <coughs> that I told. During the Cold War, I had three dreams. <laughs> and I dreamt for nuclear disarmament to begin. I, I, I had three wishes, sorry. 
and I wished for nuclear disarmament to begin. I wished for democracy in Eastern Europe. I wished for the end of the Cold War. And all my wishes came true, and one day a Yugoslav friend of mine rang me up and said, wake up, Mary, you have to go to Sarajevo today. <laughs> and so what was happening in Sarajevo, of course, was in a way the new risks, the new turbulence that followed the end of the Cold War. And so the reason I tell this story is really to illustrate, and this is going to be my first slide, this, what I call the security gap. And what I call the security gap arises from the fact that all our security capabilities were designed for the Cold War. They were their conventional military forces designed to fight wars. And yet, even though I went to Sarajevo because there was a war, it was a very different kind of war. And the sort of real insecurities we face include political violence, as in Bosnia. They include hunger, homelessness, natural disasters, disease, crime, and they cross borders. And actually, the way in which conventional military forces are designed are completely inappropriate for meeting those risks and for dealing with those risks. And I think it's a very serious problem now, particularly with climate change and financial crisis. Many of the risks, the everyday risks that people face, ha are getting worse. And yet we don't seem to have the security capabilities that are capable of meeting those risks. And that's really what my human security talk is going to be about. I'm not going to go into why we have a security gap. But I mean, just to mention Europe, we have amazingly 2 million men under arms, men and women, in the whole of Europe. And yet we don't, aren't capable of deploying more than a few thousand to areas of disaster, whether natural or man-made. So that's really why I started thinking about human security. Actually, I started thinking about it because I was asked by Javier Solana, the High Representative for Common Foreign and Security Policy for Europe, to set up a study group to think about what kind of security capabilities Europe should have. And in the end, we thought about what was needed to meet the security gap, and we thought we need a name. And in the end, we decided the name should be human security. We then discovered what a lot of history and baggage it has. So let me start by defining human security. And for me, human security has three elements. The first, for which it's most well known, is that basically it's about the security of individuals and the communities in which they live rather than the security of states. So it's about meeting everyday personal insecurity, which includes, of course, personal insecurity in, in, in war, rather than the defense of borders or the defense of state institutions. So that's the first, and that's the most well-known definition of human security. The second is that it makes a link between freedom from fear and freedom from want. And in the human security literature, which some of you may be familiar with, there's always a distinction between the so-called Canadian version and the UNDP version. The UNDP, the United Nations Development Program, 
was, I think, the first to use human security in the 1994 Human Development Report. And basically, they were making the case that human security is something akin to development. This was immediately after the Cold War. They wanted to make the case that the people's everyday insecurity matters and that the money that goes into the arms race should really be diverted towards development. Um, by, but the Canadian version, by contrast, was very much associated with the concept of responsibility to protect, which many of you may have heard about. It was concerned precisely with what was happening in Bosnia. It was concerned with situations of gross violations of human rights, genocide, um, and things like ethnic cleansing, and the idea that the international community ought to be able to send in people to protect uh, pe these victims from violence. So the focus for the Canadian version was very much on freedom from fear. It was still about violence, but it was about protecting individuals rather than protecting sides. Now, my own view is somewhere in the middle. I do think it's very important to emphasize freedom from fear because I think it's very difficult to do anything if you're in a situation of war, violence, if your rights are being violated in different ways. But at the same time, I think there's a deep interconnection between fear and want. Whether it's because people in situations of material insecurity are more likely to join a paramilitary gang or a criminal gang, or whether it's because in situations of violence people don't have access to food. Sometimes it's extremely difficult to know which is which. If you take the typical victim of today's conflicts, the displaced person, in a way they're both material and uh, physical victims. Uh, and the displaced person is also characteristic of natural disasters as well. So I think there should be a focus on freedom of fit from fear, but there should be a link between the two. How does human security differ from human rights and human development? Is it just another word for these things? I think the point to make is about Sometimes people talk about security and development as though security was about physical violence and development was about economics and material standards. But actually we know that development is about much more than that. To live in a developed society, it's not just about not being hungry, it's also about feeling safe on the streets and being able to vote for the government you want. The same is true on human rights. People often think about human rights as political and civil rights, as um, domestic peace and being able to vote, but actually, or being able to speak freely. But actually, human rights is also about economic and social rights. So all these three concepts cover a range of factors. I think human security is at, if you like, the sharp end, the crisis end. It's what Amartya Sen calls the downside risks uh, that human beings face, the moment when their lives are threatened, whether from want or disease or financial crisis or from political violence. And then the third aspect of human security is 
really, and this is terribly important and often in the literature doesn't get enough attention, is the blurring of the difference between the external and the internal. We're used to thinking of actually what we in developed countries characterized by a rule of law experience is more or less human security. And we think national security is something you do abroad. So we have the military to fight wars against our enemies and protect our society. And at home, we have a rule of law and a police. And we don't have enemies, we have criminals. And essentially, what human security is doing is saying, actually, now we live in a globalized world. We have to think of the whole world as an arena of human security. There needs to be a global rule of law. And there needs to be global law enforcement. It doesn't mean that everything's done from the United Nations or some world government. It means that um, governments have the responsibility to provide human security for their citizens, but there may be moments when they can't provide it because they're too weak or, they're, or there's a big disaster or they're actually abusing human security themselves and at that moment there is some kind of global, there is some sort of right on behalf of the victims to ask for international help. That's how I would put it rather than responsibility to protect which is a bit top down. I would put it in terms of the rights of victims, especially in a world where we've established human rights, we've established war crimes, we've established crimes against humanity but what we haven't done is, if you like, create the capabilities necessary to make these things happen. And so my concern with human security is all about what kind, you know, filling the security gap, what kind of capabilities does human security require? So I would say human security requires a set of capabilities that can be offered to the United Nations or whatever which is both civil and military, and it's very different from a traditional army. When we were writing for the European Union, we talked about human security forces uh, who operate together within a shared framework. The military often think that this is just, when they're talking about Afghanistan and the problems, they think development is just an add-on. They say, well, actually, our problem in Afghanistan is that we're not doing reconstruction and the development agencies aren't doing their bit. But actually, the development agencies can't do their bit when the military are fighting a war. So it's actually about how do you do security in a different way? How do you actually create a situation where you can do development? How do you ensure respect for human rights? How do you deal with natural disasters? And I think you'll always need a very different, each situation will require a different combination of people. And there may be many situations where you don't need military people at all. Uh, but e where you do need military people, they're used in a very different way. And what the point really is that what all these different situations have in common, what one can specify is a set of common principles. And those are the principles that I'm going to talk about. And they're principles which mean that the military are used together with civilians in a very different 
way. So what I'm going to do now is to talk a little bit about the principles. The first principle is the one that makes human security so completely different from concepts of national security or concepts of Cold War, and that's the primacy of human rights. It means that human beings have to be protected, uh, and that's more important than if you're a military man, for example, than defeating enemies. It means that if you're using the military, you have to think in a very different way about what's called in the jargon collateral damage. Actually, if your job is protecting people from human rights violations, from genocide or whatever, you can't risk their lives in order to defeat uh, the guys who are inflicting genocide. <laughs> what comes first is protecting people, which is how policemen think or firefighters. Um, and um, not only that, but that people who are inflicting genocide you consider as individual criminals rather than as enemies. Enemies make you think that they have a sort of political justifiable cause. If you think of them as criminals, then actually you don't try to kill them, you try to arrest them, though that may not always be possible, and you try to bring them to justice. So the primacy of human rights is in a way what differs most from classic war situations where it's one collective group against another. The second principle, which is absolutely key and as important as the primacy of human rights, is the concept of legitimate political authority. In the end, you have a rule of law because it's guaranteed by legitimate political authority. And in the end, it's obeyed, not actually because you have police to enforce it, even though it may be important to have police to enforce it, but because people believe that that authority is legitimate and that it's right to have rules. And the reason I put legitimate political authority rather than a state is for two reasons. In, in much of the literature about conflicts and humanitarian disasters and climate change, people emphasize the importance of states and they emphasize the importance of state failure. I do too in explaining contemporary crises. Uh, but the reason that I don't, you don't simply say a state is, is for two reasons. One is that the legitimate political authority might not be a state. It might be that in a situation where there's been complete state failure, you might need an international authority. You might need an international protectorate, a transitional authority. Or it could be a local municipality that's doing a job of protecting its people. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a state. And the other aspect of why I call it legitimate political authority is to put the emphasis on legitimacy. States are not always legitimate, and indeed, very often, the background crisis is the fact that there were repressive authoritarian states who lost the support of the population. And I think it was much more possible, if it was ever possible, to maintain a sort of peace through repressive regimes in the past in a world before globalization. But I think now in the world of globalization, where countries are open to communication from all over the world, 
it's very difficult to impose closed societies. And actually, the only way you can establish authority is, I think, through establishing legitimacy. So I wanted to emphasize legitimacy as well as political authority. What does that mean in terms of how people act? Especially, again, I'm, I'm using the military, although I want to emphasize that it's much more than that. Well, what it means is that in the end, a legitimate political authority has to be created by people in whatever area the crisis is. And all that outsiders can do is to try to make it possible for that to happen. You can't actually defeat an enemy because an enemy, whoever he is or she is, might be necessary for making peace. What you have to do is to try to create space where people can have a political process that's free of fear. In a situation of fear, people can't choose a legitimate authority. What you need is to create space. So the job of outsiders is more than anything to stabilize the situation, to create humanitarian space where people can be fed, where, people, where development can start but also to um, create a space for um, a political process. So what that means is the task really is trying to reduce violence or trying to end wars rather than win wars. That's the second principle. Now, the third principle should be part of the second, but we thought it was so important that we made it a separate principle. That's the principle of bottom-up. And what that really means is that people on the ground are the people in the end who make peace or make war. <laughs> and therefore, anybody, any outsider, has to really be engaged with people on the ground and to make, it, make space for them to talk to each other and to discuss. When we first presented these ideas to Javier Solana, he said, it's all very well. Um, but I'm a little bit worried about your bottom-up principle because what I'm worried about, he said, is that you might choose the wrong bottoms. <laughs> and what he meant by the wrong bottoms was the mafias, the criminals, and so on. So how do you know who you want to empower in such situations was the question. I actually think it's not as difficult as outsiders often think once you get to know a lo local situation, once you get to talk to people, you get a feeling for who is who. But I have one little tip on that, which is I think it's always crucial to talk to the women. Not that I think women are inherently nicer than men, I don't, <laughs> but, well, maybe they are. <laughs> but what I do think is, that in most war situations, women have the job of looking after their families. And because of that, they've got a greater interest in trying to find uh, peaceful outcomes. And I've always experienced in all the war zones I know, women's groups that are trying to cross the divide. So I think it's very important to engage women. The fourth principle is effective multilateralism. And what that essentially means is what I said to begin with, that human security has to operate within a global rule of law. I'll say something more about that in a minute, but um, essentially what I mean by this is both it has to be within the framework of law, otherwise anybody could claim 
that an intervention is needed to protect people. And you know, one of the big problems, I was on the Kosovo Commission, which said the NATO intervention in Kosovo was legitimate but not legal. And I think that's a real problem. To say that something is legitimate but not legal is a huge problem because everybody can claim that what they're doing is legitimate. So the rule of law is absolutely crucial, but also what we find today is that in every natural disaster, in every conflict, in every humanitarian disaster, there are, and some of you may have experienced that, there are many, many international agencies, there are many, many non-governmental organizations, they're all doing their own thing. <laughs> And often they're not working together very effectively. And I think one of the great advantages of the human security story is that it provides a shared narrative. It provides a sort of shared set of priorities that can help effective multilateralism. The fifth principle is regional focus. Again, people tend to assume that crises take place within individual states. But actually, as we know very well, crises spill over borders. You cannot deal with Afghanistan, as we know, without thinking about Pakistan, Iran, Central Asia. You can't. The Balkans was a single whole. So is the Caucasus. So is West Africa. Well, West Africa is now much better. But you couldn't solve Sierra Leone without solving Liberia, Congo, and now the Horn of Africa. All of these things are interconnected. It sounds obvious, but actually there's a tendency to compartmentalize crises. And the final one, actually, these are the principles we presented to Javier Solano, was insisted on by the general in our group. But one of the arguments about this is not only that there needs to be somebody in charge, someone with what Clausewitz called a coup d'oeil, a sort of sense, an insight of the situation. But our argument was also that it has to be a civilian. In a human security operation, civilians have to be in charge. Now, having, so these are the principles which in a way shape uh, what, uh, what has to, how you have to act in these crisis situations. Now, of course, the whole human security story has come up against a, a lot of criticism. And there's been quite a debate about it. So what I thought I'd do was to say a little bit about the different criticisms. So the first, and what's interesting is that there are two sets of criticisms. One, if you like, from other scholars, and the other from bureaucrats and policymakers. And both of them, in a way, have their polar opposite ones. So one set of criticism that comes from left-wing scholars is that human security is simply a way of legitimizing intervention. And a very interesting book on this that has come out recently is by Mark Duffield, where he says that rich countries are, in a sense, insured. And so the non-insured parts of the world, they're socially insured. They have welfare systems. And the non-insured parts of the world all want to get into the insured parts of the world. And so the way the insured parts of the world deal with it is through human security. It's a sort of weak safety net to stop people from migrating to rich countries. And that's, I think, rather a compelling argument. Uh, and before I sort of tell you what my answer to that is, let me just tell you what the other um, 
objection which comes from the right. Uh, so the right tend to say, oh, this is too soft. Um, it feeds people but doesn't defend people. In the end, when you have enemies, you have to defeat them through war fighting methods. And, you know, you can't have this nice, soft human security. So those are, the, those are the criticisms that come from the scholars. There are other criticisms that I haven't dealt with, like that it covers too much and things like that. But the, these are the two, I think, central ones. And what are my answers to it? Well, in a way, my answer to both is quite similar. I think for the first, there are two sorts of answers. One is that I think it is very important that this happens within a framework of international law. I think that's key to distinguish it from intervention. And it's very key that it responds to demands of people on the ground. The other aspect of my answer to that criticism is simply that I feel the Duffield argument is a council of despair because it means what do you do? Do you not intervene when people are uh, being murdered? <laughs> um, do you not respond to people's demands to be for food, for life? How else can you, is there no other, is there no middle way? That's in a sense what people like Mark Duffield are suggesting, that there is no middle way. I mean, I suppose Duffield would say the answer is world revolution. But if you don't think there's going to be a world revolution, how do you cope with this kind of situation? The other argument I actually think I, I find much easier to answer, maybe because I'm left to myself, um, and that is that actually I think human security is a hard policy and it's a lot harder than current military strategies. Actually, I think military power nowadays is actually soft power. It's all about ideology. Having a lot of military power is meant to say, I'm strong. But when you actually use it in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, you find it's not very useful to get people to do things. So in a way, I think today, you know, perhaps to put it in more sophisticated language, people will say military power is about deterrence. Well, deterrence is par excellence soft power, actually. And what human security requires is, I think, it sometimes does mean hard power. It does mean, actually, that the military do have to defend people, as the jargon goes, robustly. It does mean that they have to risk their lives, like police and firefighters risk their lives. <coughs> And actually, I think to do human security effectively is quite difficult and dangerous and hard. So I would say, on the contrary, it's a lot harder than military power if it's done properly. Now, if we turn to the criticisms that are made uh, in policy-making circles, what we find is a different set of criticisms. One set of criticisms, which largely came from people within Europe, is that we're doing it already. So what's new about human security? This is the way we do it. And the other set of criticisms, which came from the same sorts of people, is it's utopian. <laughs> so which is it? Are we doing it already, or is it utopian? Is it impossible to have a real human security strategy worldwide? Well, as a matter of fact, I do think we are doing a lot of it already. I think the UN, since 1990, has been uh, doing a lot to try to stabilize conflicts. 
Uh, it's been doing a lot to help establish ceasefires in conflict zones, especially in Africa, and sending in peacekeeping troops to support them. The European Union has pioneered what it calls civilian crisis management, which means sending in police, the rule of law, and so on into crisis zones. A lot of what's done with economic aid could be called human security. But at the same time, of course, this isn't, it's moving in that direction. But it's certainly not human security. First of all, stabilization of conflicts is not actually the same as human security. What you find in a lot of conflict zones from the Balkans to Africa is that whereas overt conflict might have been stabilized, there are still huge human rights violations, very high levels of crime. So stabilization, which they, and the same is true in the economic sphere. Usually the UN places the emphasis on getting a stable currency, getting a budget, balance and so on and actually what you see happening in many conflict zones with the aid coming in is that you see very very high growth rates but you still see very high levels of unemployment which are for me very uh, definitely signs of human insecurity so part of the problem is that we're learning to do some stabilization which is part of human security of course but it's not the whole uh, but also, a lot of what, if you take what the European Union does, which is civilian crisis management, economic aid, conflict prevention, it isn't at all coherent. It isn't framed as human security. It's framed as a set of tools for doing good. And it isn't, it's a sort of t at the tactical level, but not at the political level. And just to give you an example, I would give you the, an example of Palestine. I and mean, we did a study of the role the EU plays in the West Bank and Gaza. And what you found was that on the ground, actually, the EU does a lot more than people are aware of. The EU is easily the biggest aid donor. When the boycott was announced after the Hamas election, the EU was paying money directly into the salaries of civil servants and uh, pensioners and so on, so as to ensure they didn't starve. The EU had a police mission which was very different from the kind of security support that was being provided both by the United States and Iran. The US was helping to provide national security forces and Iran was helping to provide forces which were used for Hamas and in the end it was these forces that ended up fighting each other in Gaza. The European Union was, and the police, even though they were associated with Fatah, were often regarded by ordinary people as the only people they could trust. So they were doing that. And of course, they were also had this mission to Rafa to monitor the border between Gaza and Egypt to try to keep it open. But actually, all of these nice sounding initiatives were totally thwarted at the political level, because at the political level, the EU was part of the quartet, and the quartet thought in not in human security terms, but traditional geopolitical terms. The quartet was thinking in terms of the war on terror. The quartet, therefore, was seeing, um, was seeing Hamas as potential terrorists. It imposed the boycott. Israel actually 
prevented the Rafa mission from uh, doing its work, and nobody really objected at a political level. The police turned out to be responsible to the Ministry of the Interior, which was under, the ha under Hamas, so they never got any money. And actually, giving aid directly into people's pockets really undermined the Palestinian Authority. <laughs> and they only had to do that because of the boycott on Hamas. So in fact, there was a huge contradiction between how Europe <coughs> acted at a political level and how it acted, tried to act on the ground. And so I think the lesson of all this is that human security has to be thought of, not just as capabilities, not just as a method, but as really a political approach which is different from traditional geopolitics. Um, in a minute, I'm going to talk to you about the US and other changes, but for the moment, I'm focusing on the UN and the European Union. If you look at the other objection, it's utopian. I think um, uh, you can argue, well, it's not utopian because actually we are doing it already. <laughs> Nevertheless, I think human security is quite difficult. And again, I'll come, I'll come back to what I think is the biggest challenge for human security at the very end. Um, but before I come to the very end, I want to talk about the United States because I think uh, there has been a huge change in the United States, both as a result of the actual experience of Iraq and Afghanistan and changes that are occurring within the US military and as a result of Obama coming to power and giving up the war on terror. And I want to ask the question, are the changes in the United States human security? Um, leaving aside, by the way, the question which is very important and is very relevant to the utopian, what about Russia, China, India, because actually in the end you need to get many more countries on board. But I think every country is facing a real challenge that the way their military forces and police are structured are simply not capable of dealing with the everyday conflicts that they experience, whether it's China and the Uyghurs and the Tibetans, or India and Kashmir and other conflicts. Uh, all of these, are, or, or Mexico now with the drug wars, all of these are huge challenges that have to be solved. So I want to say something about the surge. In, uh, what I find absolutely fascinating about General Petraeus and the surge is that the changes in the United States came about really from soldiers who were experienced in Iraq and Afghanistan and knew it was going wrong and wanted change. And the, role played by General Petraeus was that he mobilized in this. And what General Petraeus did was he, ha he was given the job of running Fort Bragg, the counterinsurgency school, and he decided to bring out a new counterinsurgency manual. And actually, what he proposed in the counterinsurgency manual had a lot of similarities with the human security doctrine. Uh, and indeed, I, I happen to know that he'd actually read the papers that we sent to Javier Solana. In particular, the counterinsurgency manual emphasizes the protection of civilians, 
and it emphasizes legitimacy and it makes a big thing about how sometimes the best weapons are not war. Sometimes money, they say, is the best weapon. And what the people around General Petraeus has, are saying is what we've got now <coughs> is a shift from counter-terror to counterinsurgency. Now, from a European perspective, that sounds really odd because we think of counter-terror as policing and intelligence, and we think of counterinsurgency as Vietnam, Indochina, Algeria. But what um, Petraeus and his people say is no, counter-terror is defeating enemies and counterinsurgency is protecting people. And uh, they use the term population security rather than human security. And um, what they did in Baghdad, for example, was that they used the surge to set up joint security stations with Iraqi forces throughout Baghdad basically in order to try to solve the local situation. And it took a bit of time, uh, and they lost a lot of people. It was a lot more dangerous than airstrikes. But essentially what happened was that the Iraqis made the peace themselves, and the Americans were the enablers. In fact, it turns out that the Sunni insurgency had been trying since 2005 to make some kind of deal with the Americans because they were fed up with al-Qaeda. So the first thing that happened, and probably all of you have heard of it, was the awakening, which were the Sunni insurgency groups who made deals with the Americans and became what the Americans like to call local concerned citizens. <laughs> and once the Sunnis had started making, that in, hugely reduced the violence in Sunni areas, but once that happened, then there was enormous pressure on the Shiites and the Mahdi army to make deals too. And essentially what happened in this period was that lots and lots of local deals were negotiated by Americans on the ground. Uh, the Australian counterinsurgency expert who advised Petraeus said, you know, we thought we were going to create space for ground negotiating, negotiation. But in the end, what we did was to create a whole lot of bottom-up civil society deals which stabilized the situation. And so, in a sense, what the Americans acted at as was enablers. And maybe the most important thing they did was to stop shooting, <laughs> to stop airstrikes. But they were also there to be able to negotiate local deals. And as soon as they'd done that, to bring in local services like water, electricity, uh, aid of various kinds. And that has made a huge difference in Baghdad. And also, if I had time, I'd talk about that, Basra. So the question, and this is what apparently they're going to try in Afghanistan. I think it's going to be a lot harder in Afghanistan, um, partly because, well, I won't say why it's going to be a lot harder. You can ask me that. Uh, but what I, uh, two minutes, is mm. it? Oh, I thought it was an hour. We'll take three. Okay. Yeah, that's so generous. let that's me generous. just say two things. Five minutes, right? Yeah. Five minutes. Yeah, yeah fine. Sure. So the first thing is, is this, is this, oh, I forgot to go on to that. So that was the next one. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so is it human security? 
Well, I think there are two differences from what I've said. The first is that it's a tactic rather than a strategy. So in tactical terms, it's quite similar to a lot of the ideas for human security. But it's still, in the end, a means to defeating enemies. And Petraeus is quite clear about that. In the end, the aim is to marginalize and get al-Qaeda. And so along with these nice things go things like predator strikes, which don't always work against al-Qaeda leaders. So that's the first point, that it's a tactic. And the aim is still to defeat what they now call, rather than terror, global insurgency. So I think that's the first point. The second point is once you think like that, it leads to different rules of engagement. Since human security emphasizes the primacy of human rights, if you're using military in this role, they tend to emphasize international humanitarian law, which is much less strong than human rights. It, it affects the balance of judgment about when killing civilians or risking their lives is possible. And related to that is the fact that it's within a military framework, whereas human security may use the military in support of the rule of law, but it's a civilian type of operation. So in a way, I think it is moving in the right direction, but it's not quite there yet. And so my final point is really, oh, I, sorry, I said all those three things and forgot to, so those are the things. It's, it's, it's about tactics rather than about strategy. Uh, it affects the rules of engagement, and it's about who's in command. Um, and actually, what I found, General Petraeus said, look, the other really key point is that General Petraeus said, actually, the counterinsurgency is only one part of the spectrum of war. For most of the American military, they still see these kinds of wars as secondary to the possibility of a central big war in Europe or with China. And so they see it as the soft end of the spectrum of conflict. I think there might be situations where you really do have a raging insurgency, where you might have to use more military techniques. But I would say that's the hard end of human security. And I think that is the big difference. So the, my final point is going back. I, I really wanted to end on this to the utopian point. I think what makes human security really difficult is that it really is about the equality of human beings. And although this sounds obvious, it involves a huge cognitive shift. There is no doubt that people tend to regard Afghan lives or Iraqi lives as of less value than American lives. Uh, there is no doubt that you put saving your soldiers before saving the lives of civilians. And that is and that's what human security involves, is a shift in that way of thinking. Um, and that's the whole point about seeing the world in terms of enemies, that you group enemies together. So the, in the end, if, if the insurgency is Afghan, so are the civilians around them. Whereas if you think in terms of criminals, you see it as an individual thing. So I think that's where it might be utopian, <laughs> uh, in the sense that I think that's the most difficult 
change that has to be made, and it's the most difficult to get across. But I also feel, going back to the turbulent age, that if we can't make that shift, you know, we're going to be in for a very grim situation uh, with the consequences that I think are much more long-term than people realize of economic crisis, climate change, and so on. Okay, thanks so much, Mary. <laughs> okay, uh, we, uh, we always invite questions. Uh, Mary's obviously prepared to provide the answers. I'm not sure there'll always be the answers you want. Uh, and then after about 20 minutes for Q&A, we're going to go upstairs to the fifth floor for a reception, uh, which means basically free alcohol for those who drink alcohol. Free orangeade and apple juice for those who drink apple juice and orangeade. So, could we take the first question from the floor, please? Come on, you're a very quiet lot. Where are you? Come on. There's a hand here from the man in green. Very good. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I just wanted to focus on one particular thing, if that's okay. Well, probably better to focus on one thing than several things. Um, you talked about the importance after uh, primacy of human rights and legitimate authority of uh, sort of bottom-up um, empowerment. And you said the problem in some ways is choosing the right bottoms. You mentioned that you need to choose the right people to empower, but there's it's sort of implicitly in that statement there's a problem because you're choosing who to empower. And so that's the first thing that struck me. And the second thing was as well that if we looked at the previous bullet points, it was legitimate authority. And so there's a kind of dual problem there of, for example, if you imagine yourself in the position of the United States or the European Union in Afghanistan, and you're, you're choosing the people at the bottom for the bottom-up process, do you necessarily have legitimate authority and therefore do you inherently sort of reduce their legitimate authority by empowering them? Actually, I didn't use the words choosing or empowering. <laughs> Sorry, I must have missed it. Um, and, and I deliberately didn't use those words because I actually think empowering is very patronizing. Uh, not only do I think it patronizing, but I think it shows how much we in the West misunderstand many situations in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. I think very often outsiders are being manipulated by locals, but they don't realize it. <laughs> so I think, so the first thing to say is that um, I don't, I, I th what I'm really saying is if you can create space free from fear, then um, that gives the possibility for people to talk to each other about if you like, the public good. <laughs> Whereas as long as they live in situations of fear, they can't do that. And then the question is, how do you get into a situation free of fear? And I think when I say bottom up, I would say not so much a matter of choosing, but what I would say is the aim is to talk to everybody and very often, it's the obvious people, the women's groups, the civil society groups, the human rights groups, the peace groups, who may not have much power. In fact, they may be extremely weak and unable to do anything. But and they're the people who actually have quite a good analysis of the situation, <laughs> who can say, this is, these are the guys, you know, 
maybe you should make a deal with X or Y or Z. And so I suppose what I'm really, what, if I did say choosing or engage with, what I really meant is those are the people who seem to be always left out. What happens when outsiders come in is that they think we must talk to the guys who are making war, we must talk to the political leaders. And those are the people who have an interest in sustaining violence. So if you make a deliberate effort to talk to other people, especially women, <laughs> you may come up with a different kind of analysis. We have had a very interesting time this year that we've had Lakhtar Brahimi. I expect some of you have heard of him. He, he was the UN Special Representative in Afghanistan, and he uh, negotiated an end to the civil war in Lebanon, an end to the war in Yemen, an end to apartheid. <laughs> so he's probably the most experienced mediator. And we had quite a lot of discussions about this because he thinks you have to talk to very nasty persons, people, if you want to make peace. And my argument is, yes, you probably do have to talk to very nasty people, but you should actually have some nice people there at the same time, because they understand the situation much better than you do. Which is sometimes very difficult uh, to negotiate. Um, mm. And you know what amazed me, I mean, we had a civil society project in Iraq just after the outbreak of the war. And I went and talked to lots and lots of different people, students, women, uh, clerics. And they all said that apart from Lacta Brahimi, we were the only people who'd come to talk to them. Mm. Mm. Okay. Does he have another hand? There's a hand at the lady in the back there, yeah. And then gentleman in red, yeah, please. Thank you. If you could just yeah, hello. Um, you talk, you, at the end, you said about the, a shift in, uh, in, in the way of thinking. And yeah. Uh, and, yeah, of course, and I think also a shift in institutions, like probably, as you said, in an in, in a international framework and in a system based on shared serenity, multilateralism, uh, global citizenship, it would all really work well because, as you said, the, probably the U.S. government would care for Iraqi lives as he cares for U.S. US lives. But we live in a system based on, status, on, on national states and we still live in a static um, paradigm. And uh, one of the, to mention just one, the human, human security has been promoted by two, na two nation states that were seeking for a place in the, in the Security Council, and many people say that they did it for, for this also. <laughs> and so if we still live in this paradigm and we are seeking to, towards a different paradigm in the way we think about institutions and the way we think about people, what are the costs that we have to bear uh, in a period in which there is this contradiction between two different paradigms? What is the fight for this cosmopolitan democracy in which human security will be uh, mm. protected? Thank you very much. Mary? Well, that's a very good question, and it's very difficult to answer because national governments are elected by local populations, and they have a story they tell local populations. We have this problem in Britain that, um, for some reason, our government thinks that Trident nuclear weapons are popular. Mm -hmm. And it has, it's not because they think they're useful in any security terms. In fact, they have a very hard time trying to provide a justification, but they think it's what people want. And they think that people think and want 
in national terms. So I think there is a huge contradiction in the world today, which is exactly what you say, that systems are organized by nations, politics is organized in nation-state terms, and yet we need to move both up and down. And the question is, how do you get there? Um, but what I do think is that there are small nations that are rather successful. You mentioned Canada and Japan. You could also mention Scandinavia. You could also mention, actually interestingly enough, both Spain and Portugal, who realize that they, can't, they don't have the capacity to guarantee security independently or unilaterally. Even the United States is beginning to learn that in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that actually, if you are concerned about the security, you know, there is, if you like, an enlightened self-interest. <laughs> and if you are concerned about uh, your own citizens, then, um, then actually the only way to deal with it is by, is by dealing with it in a global way. I mean, Iraq and Afghanistan are making us less safe. Not only are they making Iraqis and Afghans less safe, they're also making British and Americans a lot less safe. Um, so, you know, at a certain point, people, can't, people do, some people do come to realize that. But I also think, having said there's an enlightened self-interest, we, there's also a kind of moral argument, which is that one of the effects of globalization, in fact, for me, that is what globalization is about, is the realization that we live in one world. And actually, I think very often, national leaders are behind populations. We do have a sense of consciousness about human rights violations in other parts of the world. We do care about it. And not only do we in general care about it, but also, of course, most countries have diasporas, you know, who live in the global cities of the world. And so there is, in a way, the paradigm has shifted more at a societal level than it's shifted at a political level. And that's part, I think, of the problem of the huge gap between politics and society. And that's a gap you know, that actually urgently needs to be resolved somehow, because I don't see how we can solve the problems we face unless we close that gap. And maybe you're right, it needs enlightened, you know, I don't think it can be done by enlightened leaders, although it would be helpful, and Obama, I hope, is very, gonna be very helpful. Uh, I think it does have to be done by pressure across, public pressure across borders and by, changing the sort of global discourse. I mean, I'm very struck by how the interest in climate change, it isn't that the world has suddenly warmed up. Uh, political leaders did not take the lead on climate change, but suddenly the global discourse changed. Mm. And political leaders suddenly thought they had to do something about climate change. And I think that's how change comes about now in a global arena. Mm. Perhaps the solution is to clone Barack Obama <laughs> and uh, <coughs> make 170, make 175 of him. Uh, there's a gentleman in red with the beads on. If I might, might identify you in that uh, way, yeah, it looks like beads anyway. Yeah. Hi yeah, I'm not a guy, but yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I can see from you. I've got these bad glasses. Carry on. Um, <laughs> yeah, my question is uh, basically the practicality of this military and civilian control over because I think if you want you said if you want human security you you will have the civilian control over 
operations. Well, I'm not entirely sure what you mean by what kind of operation and um, in what kind of situation. So could you just clarify that further? Well, um, I hate to talk about Northern Ireland in the presence of Mick. Okay. <laughs> I lived but, there for 20 years. And he knows a lot more about it than I do. But it does seem to me that for all its flaws, and there were many flaws, actually what was happening there was some, probably the closest thing to human security. And the reason was that um, you couldn't bomb Belfast because they were British citizens. Mm. And so although the first four years they started treating, uh, they started behaving as though Belfast was Aden, the crisis came in Bloody Sunday and they realized they simply couldn't pursue that sort of strategy. And so actually after 1974, what happened was that the military operated in support of the civil authority, in support of the rule of law, and it was linked with all kind, I mean, it, what I find extraordinary is that during the Thatcher years, none of this uh, free market stuff applied in Northern Ireland. It was linked to all kinds of community projects and other things. And what that did was at least to keep the violence under control um, for a long period, which may or may not, I mean, there were all sorts of factors that made possible the Good Friday Agreement. But of course, it hasn't actually produced the kind of freedom from fear. Mm that we hope for, but it certainly is the nearest thing to a human security operation. And I think that's the key point, that you may well need military, but the military should be in support of an operation of which the aim is to establish a rule of law, establish law and order so that people can move freely and so that development projects and other things can mm. be carried out. That's what I mean by human security. So in a way, whereas it, when the military in control, you may start doing some of those things, but in the end, the goal is to win the war <coughs> rather than to end the war. Just, just on that point about, not, Mary mentioned Northern Ireland. I, li I lived there for over 20 years, sort of man and boy, dare I say guy as well. Sorry about that. And uh, <laughs> I, in a way, thinking back on Northern Ireland, it... Um, it, to me, in the end, turns out to be the most privileged little chunk of land in the world. Um, what I mean by that is the following, and this is where I think it, what might work for Northern Ireland may not work elsewhere. That's why I'm a bit more pessimistic, Mary. I mean, first of all, the British government still could control the place. They put in four billion pounds a year, the equivalent, say, of eight billion dollars a year. Uh, they faced a limited insurgency, nothing like the Taliban today. Um, the Irish government in the south got involved very, in a very positive and constructive way finally um, and always had a legitimate interest in Northern Ireland and Northern Ireland was part of the UK, was part of Ireland which was part of the European Union so the European Union could play a big role and then finally to add to the kind of mixture of positives in the end Bill Clinton had a lot of Irish Americans who wanted, he wanted to vote for him and uh, so domestic politics came to play a big role for Bill Clinton in the early 1990s as well. So he was under a lot of, had a lot of domestic reasons for doing it as well. And in the end, you could negotiate it from the, what I would call the, the security approach, the kind of the British Army in the very early period, which was essentially intern people, lock people up, alienate people. And basically, the British Army, in large part, created the provisional IRA. 
by its repressive and rather stupid policies, the kinds of things we've seen followed elsewhere by other governments who created more terrorists than they've ever shot. Um, and then the British government learned. There's no question it learned over time, and, and as, you, as you point out. And, and it went through this political process, human rights application, social policies, inclusion of the minority of Catholics into the, into the structure of governments, a lot of civil society groups. There were more civil society groups in Northern Ireland than after a while I thought there was population. Um, quangos, wangos, dangos, everywhere, you know. Um, everybody was a social worker, it seemed, after a while, even some of the most, most formidable gunmen. <laughs> and, but that could work for Northern Ireland, Mary. I just, I mean, I look at a place like Afghanistan, you know, with its totally different levels of economic development and, and traditions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I just wonder, whether, well, whether, in, in that sense, Northern Ireland is a well, let, little privileged chunk for which come, one can't draw too many lessons. Let me come back yeah. to that, because yeah. actually Afghanistan, because actually in mm. some ways Afghanistan is much less bad than Northern Ireland, because the one thing Afghanistan doesn't have mm. is sectarian conflict. Mm. Mm. And I think precisely what you're saying, when, when the Americans, you know, after 2001, there was a lot of support both for the Karzai government mm. and, for, um, and for the Americans because they were so glad people to be rid of the Taliban. Mm. But actually, it was just like what the British did to create the IRA. Mm. The CIA went round supporting all the warlords, giving them money. They didn't put uh, troops out into the country. They used airstrikes against the remnants of the Taliban, and basically they created the Taliban mm. and the Al-Qaeda mm. threat. And luckily in Northern Ireland, they stopped before that point, because at a certain point by 1974, they realized it was going wrong. But imagine if they hadn't thought these were British citizens, but they were Afghan citizens. Mm. They might easily have sent airstrikes. Imagine if they'd sent airstrikes against IRA hideouts. You'd have had could, could have just could have destroyed my house. It could indeed, and you would have joined the provisional IRA. <laughs> and you know, I wasn't in it already. Oh, you? <laughs> you might have been. <laughs> but so that's the point that I'm making. I mean, of course, once you get to a situation, and exactly the same thing happened in Iraq. They mm. arrived in Iraq. I went in there in November 2003. I mean, people didn't like the fact that the Americans were there, but they were very glad to have got rid of Saddam Hussein, and they referred to what had happened as occupation liber stroke liberation. Um, and, <coughs> you know, by sacking the army, dismantling the Ba'ath Party, by sending airstrikes against Al-Qaeda, they allowed the insurgency to grow. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask one other question because I know this is one I want to ask because I've been watching as you've been watching and I'm sure many people in this audience have been watching the, uh, the way China has been dealing with, the, with its problems in, amongst the Ouija's. Do you think, without sounding too unfair on the Chinese government, um, that the Chinese government could do a lot worse than reading a lot more about human security because they seem, A, not, not, not only not to understand it but B, to do almost the opposite to everything that you suggested constitutes human security, and that would strike me, and this relates back to the lecture last week, I was thinking on China, that if this, you know, this extraordinary country with this enormous emergence, uh, and we all hope it rises peacefully, uh, we all have a stake in that, I mean, if, if, if there's nothing that the, Ch the Chinese government 
and after all, this, all these years has learned from all that's been written and thought about about the nature, the complex nature of security, uh, it seems to me that we we could be in for some real trouble. I, I couldn't you know, agree I mean, with you. I don't say that because I'm anti-China. I simply say because it worries me enormously to see the way that they deal with their own fundamental security problems internally, whether it's to do with Tibet, and I'm not saying that's an easy one, or, or, or with what's happened in Xinjiang, with the Regis. I mean, clearly, if this tells us, I, it, worry, it would worry me. I mean, worry, it should, I think it should worry ordinary Chinese people as well, not I, just foreigners. I, mean. I think it's incredibly worrying, and I do think that it is a recipe for a very long-term conflict. Mm. Um, and the question is, really, can you actually, you know, in a country like China or in other countries, I mean, there is an argument that's made by the Israeli military strategist, Martin Van Creffeld. Mm. And he says counterinsurgency work if they're either very brutal or very soft. <laughs> so either you kill everybody, mm. which is in a way uh, what the Russians were doing in Chechnya, um, and you create a kind of stability, although not peace. Mm. And he takes the examples of the Syrians who defeated some insurrection by killing everybody. Mm, or you do what the British do in Northern Ireland. And so if you're incredibly brutal, he would say, and I was thinking, does this apply in the Sri Lankan case, in the last defeat of the Tamil Tigers? Mm. Or will we actually see a renewal of the Tamil Tigers? Mm. But I think that brutal route is unbelievably difficult, especially, you know, if you, even if you're a communist dictatorship, you need a certain degree of, liber of, of legitimacy to rule. And so if you can't do that, which I'm not advocating, <laughs> I think it's very, very worrying. And I wonder whether there isn't going to be, I mean, that's my impression, but you know much more mm. about this than me, a sort of questioning of security concept within China uh, in the same way. I mean, I feel that the reason there's a questioning about security has to do with the reality of insecurity. Mm. And the first task of a state, if it's going to get legitimacy and trust, is to provide security. And if it can't do that, uh, then that really does weaken and undermine the state. And so the question is, is that going to lead to a sort of discussion and a debate inside China on these things? Mm. Well, we very much hope so, but thus far it doesn't seem to be so. But one last hand has gone up. Very, that was a very speedy hand up. I thought, very sneaky one. Yeah, sorry <laughs> about that. Last sneaky question. I just wonder what Please. your thoughts are uh, in terms of trade of arms and uh, the fact that many European governments make heaps of money sending arms to fragile states around the world. Yeah, why, why are we, why are we selling arms, man? Well, gosh, that, gosh, that was my first book, actually. Yeah, I remember, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but in fact, the arms trade is very different from what it was uh, when I wrote that book, which was a long time ago, because it was the Cold War period. And what we were doing was establishing militaries in the European and American images all over the world. Uh, and what I think has happened in the last two decades, which has very much contributed to the insecurity we all experience, is that with cuts in military spending after the end of the Cold War, that didn't necessarily translate into reductions into men and we weapons. On the contrary, 
soldiers who lost their jobs uh, either sold themselves, their own services as mercenaries in many parts of Africa and elsewhere, or they uh, sold their weapons on the black market. <laughs> and now there is a huge, so there's not only was a huge trade in the black market, but there were also lots of weapon surpluses. If you go back to what happened in the former Yugoslavia, or Kosovo is a very good example. You know, when the crisis in Albania, the weapons uh, caches were all opened up by people, and the weapons all found their ways into Kosovo. And I think that's an important factor in the escalation of the crisis in 1998. Mm -hmm. In exactly the same way, I mean, I think the huge flow of arms that went into Afghanistan during the war with the Soviet Union then found its way into Pakistan and Kashmir and greatly contributed to the militarization and violence of that conflict. Mm. So I think the whole issue of small arms trade, and which is private, it's no longer controlled by the state. Now in Pakistan in particular, there are lots and lots of small manufacturers who can just copy uh, the manufacture of small arms and make money by selling it all over the world is just a huge problem that we haven't even begun to tackle. Okay, on that particular note, I think we'll draw the occasion to a conclusion. To thank you for your questions, to thank our speaker, uh, Mary Calder, this evening, and to invite you all to the reception upstairs on the fifth floor. I'm sorry about the LSE lifts. They only take four people at a time and take you 20 minutes to get to the fifth floor. But as you're all under the age of 28, with one or two notable exceptions in the audience, perhaps you'd like to run up to the fifth floor, and you will certainly get your drink much earlier than if you wait for the LSE lifts. Anyway, thank you very much, and could we thank our speakers this evening?